Welcome, Michelle Yana Chan, to How to Build a Village. Michelle is the travel editor for Vanity Fair, a Telegraph columnist, and a contributing editor for Condé Nast Traveler. Her debut novel, Song, was published in 2018, in July, and has just come out in the US and Canada. She is presented for the BBC on the Travel Show and for Radio 4. Welcome, Michelle. We had the pleasure of meeting each other back at CNN many years ago, but I am Honored to call you a friend as well as a former colleague. How are you doing? Well, likewise, Jill, and it's a joy to join your podcast. I'm very well, and thank you for having me. See, I am so in awe of you because you have traveled more than anyone I know, and I'm really excited to hear how that traveling has informed your wonderful book. I loved Song, such an epic, so heartwarming and heartrending talking about this character who through the years who goes through all these life changes has all these amazing aspirations some which come true some that don't I'd love to hear how did your personal travels and your personal family history inform your writing of song I mean they say that your first book you know you start writing at birth because it's just kind of a life's work and I feel that probably was correct for me with song it's fiction but it's an intermeshing of some truths as well as some imagination and so there is some personal history that underpins the story which is set at the end of the 19th century follows a journey the story begins in China follows a boat journey of a young boy halfway around the world doing what so many people do today look for a better life somewhere else and now would be called an economic migrant, then were called in indentured servants. So it was the post-slavery years when a lot of the labor had dried up in the colonies because you know, slavery had ended. And so they came up with this, with this new system, tantamount in time at times to slavery, but um where where often people traveled, kind of lured to another patch of the planet by tales of gold in this case, um, and diamonds in this case. And, and often had to pay the passage kind of on arrival. So they did spend a few years in a way in, enslaved. But that was the system at that kind of at that period of time in the late 1800s. And Song is the protagonist is a young boy doing that journey. And then um, most of the book is set in the country where he aims to get to Guyana, formerly British Guyana at that time, which is on the shoulder of north of the northeastern part of South America, wedged between Venezuela and Suriname from formerly Dutch Guyana. So you get a real sense of this is all the kind of colonial, broken up colonial area. On the east of Suriname is French Guyana, which still is a colony or dependent. So that area kind of he arrived in and, and spent a bit of time kind of trying to break free of the bonds of indentured servitude and then looks to go from rags to riches in the rainforest um, and, and the story is of his life. So you're right, it kind of does, it's quite epic because it follows his life journey. And I, I guess the big themes are a lot of the big themes of writing today of identity and belonging and borders and and a lot of those themes have been a big part of my life too so so that's um maybe the intricacies of the plot but I know Guyana I still have um so I had someone someone in my history has probably made this journey that's that's about all I know in terms of the truth of family history but there was a lot of uh, Guyana today is a real mix. It's a real melange of people who've come there from all over the world. It's a small population of half a million and most of the country is rainforest. And I know it pretty well. I've been there a number of times. Um, although I, actually a lot of the rainforest in South America um, mimics other 
patches, whether in Brazil or eastern Ecuador. The, the rainforest has a similar feel in, and I've used a lot of experiences on rivers and um, on the floor of the of the rainforest and up in the canopy even. So um, a lot of my travel stories have um, I've kind of gleaned for kind of useful details for the book from from actually moving in those places. And the way you captured Song's outlook and how he would have felt making these journeys and particularly when he was a child and he was working with this horrible overseer and how he had a horrible experience with one of his fellow workers that really just stabbed me, stabbed me in the heart, the way you captured how as awful as it would be to be in these indentured servitude situations to be really young in that situation. Yeah, I, didn't, I mean, that's not personal. I've had a, I had a nice childhood, but I, I think also reading as well, Jill, which we, which we both know, I think reading the classics, I, I read the classics growing up inside out. And, and then I spent quite a lot of my twenties in China, in Western China, when I couldn't get a lot of the only books you could, you could find in English there were the classics. I remember rereading all the classics in my early twenties. And I, I feel like a lot of the of those hard times, literally hard times, like Dickens's hard times, perhaps a lot, a lot of that anguish that was not so different in era, actually, but just a different part of the planet. Jude the Obscure, um, Pair of Blue Eyes. Like I can think of some of those books where, you know, children are growing up in, in a time where education isn't just assumed and, and comfortable homes aren't just assumed. And so probably a lot of that, I, I feel, has probably come from reading. Um, on top of that, though, of course, my travels have taken me to places where I see a lot of poverty and social injustice. And, and so I have probably looked into the eyes of these kids, of course, maybe not kind of unpeeled the layers as deeply as I might have needed to for this kind of research. But I, I guess a combination of, of all of those things that, you know, the child used as a character I and mean, the child becomes a man, of course, but this boy to show kind of the vulnerability, but also the hopes and the kind of wide-eyed naivety um, as he kind of why he wants he desperately wants to leave his family to go and 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 hopefully find his and find riches to kind of bring home and then and then save his family you know this is going it's a kind of quite a classic tale if if you're coming from a um a position of poverty or vulnerability and so it's a, I, I wasn't inventing a wheel i feel like it, it's a very traditional kind of novel and probably you know, it's quite textbook in style. I was, you know, I chose an unusual patch, part of the world. Perhaps I, I think I know that. Like a lot of people didn't know, don't know where Guyana is because I, when people ask me where I'm from and I say the word Guyana, some people think it's New Guinea or Papua New Guinea. Or so I, I am conscious that I was, I was wanting to give limelight to a, a place that not everyone knew of, and and also that you know allowed you to write about to give it some novelty to you there's not there's not a lot of books that have come out of that part of South America that's interesting that you say so when people ask you where you're from because of course you've lived a lot of different places what do you tend to say most often do you give different stories depending on who asks um I don't think I do I think I say my dad is from Guyana and my mom is from the Czech Republic is what I say and then that always begs the question you know what, what about you so I guess that's my, my always my short answer is that I kind of go to my parents because I think I feel, you know, truly without sounding too bourgeoisie, but quite nomadic. And I, I moved around from a young age and, and studied in different places and then worked in different places and, and, 
I've had my kind of longest period, I think, of not having moved until a week ago, where I just moved from London to Singapore. And, uh, and so I think, I think it's always a quite a simple answer. It doesn't really vary. But I, but I do get pestered about that, because I think I don't look, you know, people don't really know what a guy needs. But I mean, I'm, I'm mixed race. So I, I and, you know, my dad's quite mixed as it is my mum's fairly Czech looking but yeah so I, I mean it's I, the nice thing about that is also that you do blend in so when I was living in western China that that area of the country Xinjiang where they're having where there's, you know, there's been so many reports about the Uyghurs that area actually is quite mixed because it's on the border with Kazakhstan and kind of the array there's a real Eurasian look and they have very flat tones in Chinese so when I speak quite bad Chinese they will think oh she must be a Xinjiang then someone from that part of uh, but equally when I'm in South America I kind of get it too like they think I'm from there I, I in Bhutan I remember it happened like, it's nice I like that kind of, that sense of camouflage and or chameleon chameleon likeness where you feel like you can fit in of course you know I'm sure a psychologist would have a field day about my unrootedness and <laughs> my mum was a refugee and my dad's also an economic migrant kind of like song was in a way and like I am like I'm traveling halfway around I mean I've been traveling and moving for work since I graduated from university so I I'm absolutely an economic migrant of course you know I'm not I'm not getting into lifeboats on the north coast of Africa, trying to get to an island in the Mediterranean. Like it's a very different way of traveling and moving that I do. But but I but I understand that impetus and that drive to to be somewhere else and and the freedom that that you think that might represent and the adventure as well in in a way. If you're not leaving civil war, you know, or if you're leaving just a play. I mean, this has been happening. I think a lot in on the border between the US and Mexico. And sometimes you're leaving a very violent nation and a violent situation in the neighborhood that you're from. But um, sometimes you're just looking to kind of get paid more, or find an opportunity or in you know, the streets are paved with gold. And I get that, I totally get that. Or, or love, you're meeting someone from another place and- Oh, much more romantic. Let's do love rather than money. <laughs> <laughs> now, so you've traveled so many places, professionally and personally, do you have, a favorite or, or one that a place that resonates with you more than another? Yeah, I think I probably do. I, I love where I am now, Southeast Asia. I love this patch. I, I really love Laos and Myanmar, um, Nepal, Bhutan. I love that kind of area. And then I love East Africa too. I, Swahili speaking kind of countries. I, I tried to kind of find common denominators of, you know, why these areas speak to me. And, and maybe the other one is that whenever I go to a place where there's been conflict, I just have such warmth and such hospitality offered to me. And it's just not a fairy tale. It just is true. And I don't know if there's just this, this, this real understanding and appreciation for every day that you wake up alive. <laughs> And perhaps that's what it is. And, or maybe it's also the fact that, you know, a visit is quite a novelty. You know, some of the places I go to Yemen, I know I had such extraordinary warmth and hospitality. Chad, you know, you are perhaps more unusual. They see less visitors. So it's interesting to kind of meet someone from outside and hear their stories and, and be curious towards them and inquisitive. But I, I, it's always the places, you know, Western Uganda, Eastern Congo, like that, that area has had so, uh, such, such a tough ride. And the people there could not have been kinder to me or sweeter or more generous when 
they have come out of such tough times and have very little um, to their name. So, so there are a few places that do um, that that I do resonate with me. You're right, but um, but I love to get. I genuinely love to go anywhere and everywhere. And and people say, um, oh, well, you've been to Greenland. Like, why would you go? You know, I but I have only been in August and March. Like, you know, everywhere is different in a different month. And and that and that's why you'll never run out of planet because there'll be a different season or a different set of people that you meet. Um, there's always a different experience. So I I do repeat. Like, I go back a lot, and of course that's fascinating too. And it's also really useful um, as a reporter to have that long game with places that you've been to 20. I just wrote something on Cambodia, but I was there the first time in the early 90s when the UN was brokering elections. And to have that kind of long view to talk about the intervening years and having visited intermittently over a period of time is so it's so helpful to show um well, you know, a degree of intelligence when you're writing about it and not just parachuting in to write one story. So how do you do how when you visit a place, how do you get to know it or interact with the people? there how do you encounter that warmth and hospitality you know when you when you're coming in cold or even or if you've been there before i guess that makes it easier but how do you really get to get to know a place i well i always travel alone if i can like occasionally I, I'm, I'm i'm paired up with a photographer or crew but if i can i'd rather travel solo and then get the photographer to kind of follow and so I'll kind of send the, the shot the shot sheet afterwards and say this is where you should go and who you should take pictures of. And so traveling solo is the is the easiest way. You often are, are targeted by locals because they are curious that a woman's traveling on their own. So so that's a very straightforward tip. Obviously, yeah, if I have been there before, I'll have contacts on the ground. But if I haven't, then I will reach out to people I know who have a connection to the city or, or region. Um, if I have time, sometimes, as you know, in this kind of crazy world, we, I, you know, I have, I don't do that as often as like I sometimes doing that on the plane and trying to send it as I land. So I kind of reach out to, you know, to spread the net, and and sometimes those connections are quite random and and perhaps unconnected to the thesis that I have in mind for a story. But it always tends to germinate into something interesting. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm strong on networking, I guess, in a way. I'm strong on kind of reaching out and very generous, equally when people do that to me too like I will absolutely open metaphorical Rolodex and and give any telephone number to any reporter who um competitive or not you know who asks for it because I it's you know it's a different story it's so helpful it can really make or break a trip sometimes just one extra contact and then but some okay you know definitely I'm sometimes arriving with with unarmed in a way and um, and the you know the best places are often bars. You know, you know you walk into a city if you're. I'm trying to think of like maybe Khartoum. I didn't have a lot of contacts in, and so but there's a lot of cafes that are along the night, like where the white and the blue Nile mix. There's all these little cafes around there, and I just plonked myself there and um, for a bit, and managed to rent a car from someone and um, find a connection to take me up to some of the pyramids up in Marine. And and I, so I think it's. It's putting yourself in kind of social situations, slightly just watching what locals do, seeing where they gather, talking to the barman, dare I say it, that's really useful. What I'm I'm constantly writing, you know, in the evening at bars. And then the barman is this huge resource always. And um, I mean, I'll just, I'll cold call sometimes. I'll cold call the, the ministry, perhaps. If I if I don't really want to be known, then I'll cold call. Um, I'll go into bookshops, like secondhand bookshops, really useful contacts. 
Yeah, I, I mean, a lot of rambling the first day and, and I, it has to be quite quick because often we don't get given much time anymore. Mm. If I, the more time, the better, obviously. But if it's fast and I'm kind of, I'm really, really, I hit the ground running on the first day and, and race around and, and people suggest something and I'll follow it. I'll follow, absolutely follow up everything that anyone says. So I think following a lead, being flexible so that, you know, if you have a bit of an itinerary or an agenda, just change it or chop it or cancel it or do something, you know, but listen to the, the suggestions that people make. And every, you know, my last question is always like, is there anyone else you think I should meet? Mm. And that is, um, that always opens up like three more people that I then meet. And, and it, it, ten, it tends to, I mean, I tend to have kind, I, my column actually at the Telegraph is called The Kindness of Strangers. And, mm. and that is what I have experienced. Um, that it's strangers who have built my stories and built my career in a way. It's them who I'm, you know, I'm grateful. For. I, I have messages to, to to tell, stories to to narrate. But if it wasn't for all that warmth, I I would you know have have nothing to to express. Now, and so you mentioned you mentioned bookshops. Are, are there any? What books would you recommend for inspiring a love of travel? Or what what's inspired your love of travel? Would you say if there are any or informed it? You know, it's a really. Um, Travel writing has, like when I was young, I really read a lot of um, travel writing. Like that is definitely kind of, it made me want to, to be a travel writer, I guess. And, and, but it was, it, was, it was the conquering style of writing um, in a way. And I, I, it wasn't um, this empathetic travel writing that we have now. So it was people climbing mountains or crossing deserts or documenting a people but in a very orientalist way mm. none of them which I really recommend you know whether it's Thesiger or um I mean even the women of that time you know I love I mean I love that I've read and loved those books at that time of my life that I love that I read them and loved them Stein, and but I but I don't that's not where I turn to now there's a, the travel writing now has become I think strangely more internalized and I I'm not sure I like, I think there's always a lot of flux. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I've never written a travel book myself. Like I haven't, I chose to go to a novel. I'm writing something else. that's like a creative nonfiction. I think they call it mostly kind of, yeah, a fiction, nonfiction kind of blurred line book. And I think I haven't written it because I've been wary of going to doing that train journey in 300 pages and taking someone with me on that when I feel like I can do that in 4,000 words or 2,000 words and mm. and I because I, I and I think the reason I don't want to chill is because I, I I if I was reading it I would want to do it and I don't want necessarily to to read you know spend a few days reading someone else's journey like I want to be on that journey and it's kind of maybe it's it's a funny emotion that is evoked that I want to to be on it rather than so I think the books that I've I've loved have always been kind of a imaginary travel and Chatwin, Bruce Chatwin, as, as much as he was this white male of, of, you know, patriarch of his moment, like his books, because as you know, he's known to make things up, to put it mildly, I think. Um, and, and then, the, you know, the, the purists say, you know, that's not travel writing. But I think it absolutely is. It's whether it was Ertz or particularly Ertz, but um, King of Weeder, even his book on Patagonia, song lines. I think a lot of those are are this are this blending of reality and imaginary. And I and I think 
think that's where I, I belong probably. And so I don't think I would ever write this kind of classic travel um, book. And, and so, yeah, I think in terms of kind of who I recommend now, who kind of gets me excited um, in that sphere, uh, people who write about places that um, they're from maybe. And so it becomes almost kind of automatic kind of travel writing. So whether that's Aminata Fauna or I feel like, you know, Bernadine Evaristo has written about Nigeria, kind of going to Brazil, Um, Elif Shafak, who writes about Turkey, but, you know, through her, through novels, through fiction, Marza Mengiste, who writes about Ethiopia, but with, with again in fiction, like I feel like some of the, the, tra- like the travel literature that I've loved is more stories with a sense of place, perhaps than riding the red rooster, or, you know, this, the kind of the style of, um, of the traditionalists who have a place A and a place B and tell you how they got from one to the other, whether that's Michael Palin or, you know, that's a, probably less kind of what I love. Well, one of the things I loved about song is I felt like I was there with him, you know, like you felt you had like that you described the water and you described like foliage. It just felt like I was in that place. Um, what, what, so what are you working on next in the, in the writing space? The next is a book I'm co-authoring. Um, it's, we've called it two friends. It just kind of got its name. And, um, Shanao Sutawala is my co-author. She was a fellow journalist with me at Newsweek magazine 20 years ago. And, and she's gone into academia. She, and I've, I've stayed in the media and, and, but we, our friendship has continued. And so there is a, a, some truths and creative nonfiction, I think as this genre is called, where we start a kernel of a friendship in a bureau in London around 9-11 and, and there are highlights and lowlights of the friendship for the next 20 years until we reach the present moment. And then the second half of the book trajectory is in the future. So we speculate for a couple decades going forward. Um, curiously, we, we wrote a pandemic into the future like, you know, before the pandemic. So we've had to pull that into the present. But wow. so it spans about 40 years. Um, the strapline that I still love, although Shanaz doesn't love, so I probably shouldn't say it, but I will, because it just it's concise. And that's my journalisticness that comes through. But it's in my head, it's friendship in a post-trust world. And that kind of is, is something that is an undercurrent for me, because I feel like so much is dismantled over the two decades since 9-11, you know, we just obviously had that anniversary, but whether that's in just in the justice system or political system or the finance system or media, you know, while all this, you know, all these challenges and tests for our friendship, it's these two women and, um, and how their lives kind of move in and out and ebb and, and how the fr- and friendship ebbs and flows too. And, and then we, we take that forward into the future. And I absolutely have loved doing this book because song actually was quite a labor. I think writing it with someone else has, has been really helpful for discipline. Like, you know, her time is precious, my time is precious. And when we get together, we just get it done, which is so, you know, so uplifting. And as opposed to just chewing the end of my pencil half the time. <laughs> so that's been great. And it's been, you know, she, like we tell each other off and, shout at each other at times and and you know and raise our game between each other and it's that's been 
Great. And then we write, I mean, our, our methodology has really been interesting because we started before the pandemic, but of course everyone's does online Zooms or whatever now, but we have well before that, we're kind of writing in Google Docs absolutely simultaneously in each other's sentences, editing each other and deleting each other. And while the other one rewrote it and while on like another screen was on whereby, you know, the equivalent of Zoom and um, that's how we've been working. And it's been brilliant. Like it's, uh, we're amazed at how successful that's been. And we're nearly through. We're, we're kind of deadlined in a couple of months. And then I hope it will be out in a year. So um, if these things are slow. I mean, they are from my point of view. So, but um, yeah, really excited about this one. And other stories, the publisher has bought it. I love their list and I love what they're doing. So I'm excited to be part of, part of their team. Great. And what else can viewers and listeners do to find you? Oh, I have um, a very out-of-date website, which is michellejanachan.com. And, um, you know, I'm on all the social channels, but probably not as actively as I should be. Well, wonderful. Well, congratulations again on Song's success. And thank you for taking time to stop by. Jill, thank you for having me. I've loved it. You are a joy to talk to. 